0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. All right. Well, church family, if you can go ahead and have a seat, please, and grab your Bibles once again. It's great to see everyone's faces. Hello. I need to hear it. Thank you. Thank you. Would you join me one more time in prayer before we get into the preaching of God's word? And Father, uh, the time has come. Bibles are open once again, and, and now we're settled in. Um, we're settled in to seek your face, and certainly you have made yourself known to us in your word. You are revealed in your scripture chiefly, and so I pray as you've granted this, this moment now a great privilege to to preach your word. I ask with eyes fixed upon Jesus, I ask for your Holy Spirit um, to to allow me to impart that which you have um, blessed me with from this passage. So do, uh, do a good work through me, I pray. May we share in this together. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 23. Well, Over the years, in our walk with the Lord, as we regularly spend time with Him, seeking Him in His Word and in prayer, He He challenges and even changes our thinking on things. Thoughts and positions we once held may, not all of them, but, but many may alter or even change dramatically from what they once were. And and this is to be expected in his sanctifying work in our lives, to at least some degree, right? Isn't this what Romans twelve two is speaking of, or speaking to in large part? Do not be conformed to, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect— and this chiefly comes through his word and through prayer, as, as you wrestle with it, right? Wrestle with his word and prayer. Well, upon reading this passage, Genesis chapter 23, the recalling of a thinking of mine that has been put into question by God's word came to mind afresh on a particular subject matter. Now, allow me to clarify something before I proceed. Don't hear me share this as if attempting to, to sway you one way or the other. That is not my intent at all. In fact, the verdict is not yet in, even in my own mind, on the topic. Okay? And, and it may provoke some contemplation in your mind along with me, which is, which is fine and well. But I only share it as a place where the Lord has worked through His Word over time to challenge my thinking to have me reconsider my thinking on a subject matter and now how I see it come through in the text before us. So some years ago, if ever in in conversation about my death with someone, I was adamant that I wanted to be cremated with only only the question of where. Where are my ashes to be dispersed on the earth? It had to be some amazing place I loved, right? That's just naturally going to be given. My reasoning is twofold. Number one, it's the most affordable. <laughs> it's the most affordable. I didn't want the burden of the expense of a full burial to be left to my family. Just, just incinerate me and pour out my ashes over, over a mountain place or, or maybe even the ocean or just you know a place yet to be determined. Pour my ashes out over there and just be done with it and then go have a festive time in my name. That was number one. That was number one reason. Number two, when Jesus returns, those ashes, they will come up from wherever they are, from wherever they are, and meet and me, me my, my soul, in the sky where glorification of my whole body will be completed, right? We're waiting for that. And God is fully able to do so. I mean, many, many men and women have passed in such a way where their remains are at the the bottom of the ocean. I mean, just miles deep. Or they have been burned in a fire or scattered everywhere in in an explosion. Forgive that. (laughs) Or even buried in a permanent uh, snow tomb, right? Fall in a crevice. They're there, there. Or heck, even turned into dung from animals who've ate their corpses. We know that has taken place. Scripture even tells us that. God is able. So whether those or any other imaginative thinking of your body that returns to the earth when deceased, it doesn't matter. Nothing poses a difficulty for God in bringing every man, every man and woman who ever lived before his throne at the end of all time. On that day, judgment day, everyone from Adam to the last of us will stand before our maker and give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here? Before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, if I have a saying in how this is to go about, you know, where my remains are going to be when I die, that was how I would like it to be. Just, just cremate me. Make it easy. Which is all fine and good. But, and here it is, but I began to become challenged on this thought as I started noticing in scripture that everyone in the Bible was, was buried buried, laid in a tomb, as if sleeping peacefully, both in the Old and the New Testament. We'll see this take place with Sarah in today's passage, and it's clear that saints in the New Testament were also buried. After John the Baptist was beheaded, Matthew fourteen twelve, his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus, Following the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, Acts 8.2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Our Lord Jesus himself was laid in a tomb, Luke 23.53. Then he, Joseph of Arimathea, he, he took it, the body of Jesus, took it from or down from the cross and wrapped it In a linen shroud and laid him, the body of Jesus, in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So, just like that example of our Lord Jesus, consistently we see in Scripture great care done in the process of burying the deceased. So, how does this tie into Genesis chapter 23? other than abraham purchasing a piece of land to bury his wife sarah in which acquiring the property you know becoming a possessor of land in the land of canaan the very land sworn by god that he would sworn that god swore that he would give to him very noteworthy and mark that we'll spend more time there later other than that how does this this challenge in my thinking cremation versus burial No verdict yet, but how does it tie into the passage before us, you ask? For me, for me, it had to do with one's legacy, with one's legacy. More than the burial alone, there is much involved in Abraham and what is taking place in the death of his wife, Sarah, that provides an example to us of leaving a God-honoring legacy. Which is, which is the crowning truth I want to place on our heads today from Genesis 23, leaving a God-honoring legacy. So whether it be looking over a tombstone of a deceased loved one or fly fishing in a favorite spot of theirs where their ashes were, were put into in the stream to flow away, It's those reflecting moments that speak volumes of the legacy left by them. And the passage before us speaks volumes about leaving a God-honoring legacy. The verses in Genesis 23, they won't cover every way. It's not exhaustive in how this is done, but it provides primary truths for consideration and application for each of us this morning. So, our first point... Our first point to expound upon leaving a God-honoring legacy is love your family well. And we're going to pause here for a little moment. (laughs) Okay. Oh, leave them. Like the whole thing, just leave it on me. Okay. Okay. That's all right. I'm just going to leave it like right here. Does that work? What's the first point? Love your family. All right. Got you tuned. Uh, Did you have this on? Oh, it's on mute. Okay. I'm on. All right. Thank you for that permission to interrupt. So back, back to the sermon. Okay, love your first point of leaving a God-honoring legacy. Love your family well. And looking at the first two verses where we we see this, love your family well. We We know all too well that Abraham made mistakes, right? He made mistakes to be certain he did. Big ones at that. Shameful ones. Abraham was not flawless, but he was faithful. And we know from scripture that overall, he loved his family well. And I'm not saying so just because of his successful military campaign to rescue his nephew Lot, as legitimate that was of being an act of love for his family. Not to mention his, his intercessory prayer for Lot. I mean, what an example that was, right? The intercessory prayer for Lot that God answered in God rescuing Lot before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that is loving your family well. Those both support that. But most emphasized of leaving a God-honoring legacy and loving his family well, I believe to be from the opening two verses here and also from where we just left last week in Genesis 22, where God tested Abraham in the offering up of his son Isaac as a burnt offering. I believe Abraham gets just five powerful stars in living out Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Like, Abraham knocked it out of the park, okay? Abraham passed that test, and therefore, Abraham was a good dad. Even though his knife was held to his son right before the angel intervened, he was a great dad. He loved God more than his son. He loved God more than his son Isaac. And God, God knew Abraham loved his son, his only son, who Abraham was willing to sacrifice, as God told him to, as a test. Abraham loved his family well because he loved God above them all. Which is so crucial to get and have exhibited in our lives. I mean, husbands, dads, our love of our family can only be done best when our love of God is greater. I mean, that's just black and white how it is. Our love for our family can only be done best when our love for God is greater. You desire to be a great husband? Love Jesus with all your heart. You desire to be a great dad? Love Jesus with all your heart. Abraham, though flawed, was faithful in doing so. And we we have a further peering into An aspect of this loving of his family well that's put on display here by his mourning and weeping over the death of his wife, whom he loved. I mean, it's, let's go ahead and read that. Let's go ahead and read it. Sarah, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron and the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. To weep for her. Abraham loved his wife. They grew very old together. Looking upon this, I was thinking of a prayer Eric offered up at Friday night. Just growing old together. They grew old together. 127 years? They grew old together. And remained together through all the ugliness in their lives, which we've been learning about these past several months. right? They remained together. We've learned a lot about that by what is retained from, our script- from the scriptures. They had their trials, their difficulties, and they remained together. They were faithful, flawed, but faithful, broken, but for better or for worse. They remain together, and God, in spite of it all, spite of all the brokenness and all the flaws, God worked through them as a part of his redemptive story. Husbands, wives in the congregation, who are also a part of God's redemptive story, right? We're still in the process of leading up to the consummation. Like We still are waiting for that day. We're part of it. We have a song of redemption. When God has saved us and transforming us by his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into that redemptive story. We are being made new. And our marriage is a part of that. And we're no different. In spite of the flaws, in spite of brokenness, God is faithful to continue his work. And this this has all sorts of displays, right? All sorts of displays depending on your life situation. We all don't share the Charles and Caroline Ingalls storyline. We just don't. As wonderful as that show is, right? And I realize that. All our situations are different and complex and messy. I, don't, I won't pretend that that is not the case. But in every situation, there is, I believe... According to God's word, there is a steadfast love and faithful path to take steps in that exhibit the love we are to show by virtue of being recipients of that same love. God's love. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4:19. And yes, love God first and foremost, which we are able to do because he first loved us, which is what that passage is speaking to mainly. But what does Jesus tell us in John's gospel? John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this the apostle John emphasizes over and over again in his first epistle, telling us believers, 1 John 4, 7, as an example among many in that very same epistle. He says, Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whatever love and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, On the authority of God's word, in every situation, there is always, by the guidance of God's word and His Holy Spirit in you, there is always a path of love. And steadfast love sometimes means you're facing fears head on. It can be terrifying, it can be painful comes with great risk. Yet, be the path the Lord would have you choose to take. You may know clear as a bell what love looks like in a given situation, but flat out do not want to take it. Do not want to. You know, acting in faith to take the step... Along the path of steadfast love is just, is just fought against by seemingly every part of your being. Like, you're just like, no, but you know it's the path. While in faith, you know it to be right, the path to take, and that is difficult, if not impossible for us. But then it wouldn't be steadfast love, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Steadfast love is thinking and feeling, I can't possibly go forward. I just, I can't. And then doing just that. Steadfast, by essence of the very word, implies it is not easy. Majority of the time, it will go against your instinctual bent. But... One of my favorite verses, Psalm 25:10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. What guidance is that truth? What guidance? And these opening two verses provide two key qualifiers of his love for Sarah. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her mourn and weep. Just that time given, right? It is right and good to grieve over the loss of a loved one, to to be sad, to, to mourn, to weep, to express, express deep sorrow. Ecclesiastes 3, to every season turn. You guys know the song, right? I'm gonna get that melody in your head. But that is quoting Ecclesiastes 3, that song. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under, the, under heaven. So just as laughing and dancing are in that list or in that song, so also are mourning and weeping. And so bridling those emotions is just Harmful. It's just harmful not to let that out. Let it go. And it's dishonoring to the deceased. I really like a quote by Matthew Henry. Listen to this. He says, tears are a tribute to our deceased friends. Listen, when a body is sown, as in bearing a seed in the ground, when a body is sown, it must be watered that gives me goosebumps that's beautiful i love that cast out any notion that not to cry is a manly thing that not to cry shows you you are tough on the contrary it sh- it, on the contrary it shows you to be a just a prideful idiot to, like, to think mm, no i mean it's strength to be hurting to be grieving to be weeping when it's appropriate to weep Tears are a tribute to our deceased friends. When a body is sown, it must be watered. Abraham loved his wife, Sarah. He loved his family well, and therefore lived a life that would leave a God-honoring legacy. Another, another healthy part of grieving over the loss of a loved one is not perpetually staying in that state. Not perpetually staying there. What does Abraham do in verse 3? And Abraham rose up from before his dead. You know, he, he rose up. He didn't remain in, a, in an immobile, despondent state, but gathered himself to take the next step in life. And that step being another aspect of Abraham's love for his wife Sarah in his pursuit for a proper burial place for her. And in this pursuit we will find a remarkable amount of a God-honoring legacy Abraham will be leaving. The passage is amazing of what is portrayed there. And let's not forget Abraham. Abraham he's a sojourner, meaning he he just moved around. He moved around from place to place within the land of Canaan, but he just was moving around. He was a sojourner. Abraham is in the land promised to him by God, but, but he possesses none of the land. Possesses none of it and has been and has been and also known to be by the people living in the land of Canaan as one who wanders. He's just a wanderer, sojourner. One who resides temporarily at a place. At the time of her death, at the time of her death, Sarah has been a sojourner with Abraham for, guess what? 60 years. I don't know, Craig, how old are you? Are you a 60? Yeah, I don't think. Either. I'm just teasing. None of us are that old yet, at least in this room. I don't know. Pat? Pat, you qualify. 60 years wandering. Like, just, he hasn't been a home. He's been in the land, but that has been his life. But this doesn't prevent Abraham from gaining. This is what's key, you guys. 60 years. But it doesn't prevent Abraham from gaining the respect and honor of those living in the land. He does so into great magnitude. And is brought about over time, I believe. Brought about over time by by loving your neighbors well. Which is what he did. By loving your neighbors well. Which is our second point to emphasize in in leaving a God-honoring legacy. To do so, for us to leave a God-honoring legacy, it is important, if not vital, to love your neighbors well. Our second point, which is really just the rest of the chapter as we go through here, verses 3 through 20, taken through the rest of the chapter, love your neighbors well. I mean, how, how revered was this man Abraham. We're going to go through the text again, but it's just like, it's amazing. He is so revered here. And again, he made mistakes. He wronged his neighbors on occasion, but that was not his M.O. Whatever wrong was done was made right, and Abraham sought for and established peace among the people of the land he lived. He fought for righteousness and justice. We see that in his conquest to rescue his nephew. Abraham's life earned him the respect, the high regard of his neighbors and it was clear to all who knew him and this is beautiful, it was clear to all who knew him whom Abraham worshipped. Abraham would mark places in that region by planting a tree or, or building an altar and at that place where that was done and he had returned to, you know what he did? He'd call on the name of the Lord. These were public places. Abraham was not private with his faith. It was put on display in, in the public arena. We see this distinctly in verse 6 with the Hittites' response to Abraham's request. They respond, Hear us, my Lord. I mean, look at just the title, My Lord. Hittites speaking to Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God what a compliment. Tell me. Tell me that Abraham wasn't public with his faith in God. You better believe he was. You better believe he was and was highly respected for it. Let's go ahead and read these verses 3 through 20. One more time through to just to just capture this whole scene afresh, okay? Verses 3 through 20. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. Choicest. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave in Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field." For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron from, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, I gi- and, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I, for the third time, give it to you. Bury your dead. And for the second time, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, "But if you will hear me, but if you will hear me, I give you the the price of the field." accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, "My lord, listen to me. <laughs> A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead." And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Full fair price. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron. In the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Can you just picture that scene? Like the gate of the city. Activity, people going in and out, but also the place where the elders of the city would sit and conduct those transactions. Just, just picture that. And Abraham there among them, known well, and, and just that dialogue, that exchange. I mean, the mutual care and respect exchanged between them is just remarkable. Before all who went in, there was just witnesses all the way around this place where business affairs and transactions occur for witness sake. That which takes place here at the city gate is greatly revealing of the relationship shared between them, between Abraham and his neighbors. Abraham's integrity is pointedly seen here, but he he wasn't born with integrity, nor is anyone. It, It came over time through trusting God and remaining faithful and obedient when being tested by God. Psalm 37.3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And as a sojourner, I believe Abraham is a testimony to this and loving his neighbors well. He conducted his affairs in a respectful manner. Though freshly grieving, let's not forget that. He just left his dead wife. He's still hurting inside. Though freshly grieving the loss of his wife in his old age, he still more than once bows in respect to the Hittites in this conversation at the appropriate moments. The Hittite Ephron, whom Abraham inquires with to purchase the cave from and the land along with it, he's just delightfully willing to give him the land. It's yours. What's that between you and me? I want you to have it. I mean, are you kidding me? That's not, that's not commonplace. Not now, not then but it is an expression of the high regard and honor that Abraham held in the eyes of the natives to Canaan. And that's just, I love how Abraham responds. Like he doesn't diss or down Ephron. He retains the honor that Ephron shows and the generosity offered in the presence of all the other elders, these peers. He retains that and he respectfully motions to pay full fair price. No, full fair price. Which is so very wise, for in the witness of so many, in the witness of so many, never would this transaction be called into question, would it? Never would it be called into question, whether in Abraham's remaining days, or in any of the generations to follow. I mean, there was witnesses. Everyone was seeing it. We saw that over and over. He secured a burial place for his wife, that he himself will be buried out with Sarah, And just a couple chapters ahead, we're going to be there. Chapter 25 in a few weeks. Abraham, known as a sojourner, secured this place as a possession, just as God promised Abraham would. It wasn't the whole land God promised, right? Not not yet, but it was a part of it. And so yet we continue to see the unfolding of God's redemptive story. God is, is moving his redemptive story along, And here we have another significant piece of it. Abraham is now to be a landowner in the promised land of Canaan. Maybe even putting aside his reputation as being a sojourner now. Yet, I don't think that's the case. Because, coincidentally, the very purpose of the land purchase is right in stride with Abraham, even as a landowner now, still being a sojourner at heart. What does, what does Hebrews 11, 9 through 16 tell us about this man of faith? By faith, Hebrews chapter 11, 9 through 16. By faith, he Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as a foreigner land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abraham. And also those with him, heirs with him of the same promise, were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, along with the heirs with him of the same promise, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the, now listen to this, on the earth. On the earth, strangers and exiles on the earth, not just in the land of Canaan, but on the earth. For people who speak thus, Abraham, along with the heirs with him of the same promise, speaking thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so, even the very purchasing of this field with the cave as a burial place, its purpose serves leaving a God-honoring legacy for points to a hope of resurrection. Like, they weren't looking at so much this land. They're looking at the city whose hands and builder is God. Jesus, speaking of, of being dead, even uses the word sleeping in referring to the deceased. Remember about the deceased girl? He says she's sleeping. Not to mention Lazarus, who Jesus stalled four days, purposely stalled four days in coming to him, that God would be glorified in raising Lazarus from the grave. Remember Martha's caution to the Lord? Lord. Like, don't open the tomb. His body will stink as in his corpse is past rigor mortis. It's in the process of decay at this point and will surely stink like anything that is rotting. Jesus calls forth dead to life. First Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise first at the trumpet call from the Lord. When whatever and wherever our remnants are on earth, will rise up in a glorified state, same as Jesus's body was when he rose from the grave. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So to to die now before Christ's return is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, you know, our soul, our spirit at that point is in heaven with Jesus and, forever, and enjoying him in his kingdom and the light of the presence of the Father. But there still awaits, there still awaits a reuniting with our body here on earth. You know, our, our, our tent, as the Bible says, our, our body is still left. We're still awaiting that we would be further clothed. So that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 again. When, When that occurs, the Bible says, when that occurs, we will be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Seemingly instantaneous, but nevertheless, a change taking place that involves both our physical body, and our entire spirit, the person as a whole, Romans eight eleven. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So resurrected Jesus, you know, we know this. He he ate and he talked and he walked. He wasn't a ghost just kind of floating by. I mean, he was he he was flesh and blood. I mean, walking on the road to, to Emmaus with his two disciples, they didn't recognize him, but he sat down and he broke bread with them, and they saw him. They were, he, he was in their presence. They shared a feast together. And Doubting Thomas, we know this story is probably the most exclamation point. John 20, 25 through 28, Thomas says this, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark. I don't want to just see it. I want to put my finger through it. And place my hand into his side where the spear went. I will never believe. Never. Like that is emphatic. Never. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas, who said those very words, was with them. Although the the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And I wonder what his look on his eyes were towards Thomas in this moment. Because then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Go ahead. Put your finger here and see my hands and, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Wow. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, what did he say? My Lord and my God. So that is the resurrected Jesus body, right? That's the glorified body. And we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning if you love Jesus and delight in his word, you have the first fruits of the Spirit and therefore are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is the redemption of our bodies, for he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So as Peter describes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, which is you and I, the church, those who love Jesus and delight in his word, Peter says this. He says, beloved, I urge you. I urge you as, guess what? Sojourners and exiles sojourners and exiles, just like Abraham, heirs of the same promise. I urge you to abstain from the passion, passions of the flesh which, which wage war against your soul. So we, like Abraham, see and greet God's promises from afar and acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles here on earth. Like Abraham, trusting God who made the world and everything in it, and has for everyone of mankind since the beginning determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Like Seth Schreiber, born 1976, currently living in Parkdale, Oregon, for example. That is determined allotted period of my existence and the boundaries of my dwelling place, my current address, as determined by God. And the same for you, Christian. And so as, as sojourners ourselves, establish deep root in the boundaries God has placed you in, where he's placed you to live. Love your family well to the end, as we see here with Abraham. To the end, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. You'll love your neighbors well love your neighbors well be faithful and steadfast there while exhibiting the reality of being a sojourner meaning meaning not living as if as if this is your home but rather knowing with full assurance and living circumspectly of your home being where your heart is and that being heaven this doesn't mean you don't blossom where you're planted by all means you'll blossom uh, plant vineyards, gardens, improve your dwelling place as you're able. Have children, have your sons, marry wives, and, and, and seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29.7 is such a good layout of sojourners in exile waiting for our home. Like, that's how we're to exist. Do all this. Just don't permit your heart to be wrapped up in it where it becomes your treasure. Where it, it, where it becomes the kingdom you are living for. We need to be watchful of this, saints, because you know, this is a broken world. This is not our home. As, as beautiful and enjoyable life can be at times, just had a glorious bike ride yesterday, and that was a fantastic day. It's not our home. I don't want my affections wrapped up in that. We have a heavenly inheritance we are pilgrims on our march of faith, coursed by our Heavenly Father to our heavenly abode, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That cannot, I love that, that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. This is where, this is where by faith in Jesus we belong. This is our home. As sojourners here on earth, keep your treasure where it belongs, wrapped up entirely in Jesus. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, and thereby leaving a God-honoring legacy that brings high regard for your name to God's glory both now and in the time to come. Let's pray. Father, as, as we conclude in, in this time this morning together and, and, and looking upon your word and, and receiving your word from it, from your, your, your truth, God, the preaching of your word, we, we acknowledge that, if, that our one comfort is that our life is not our own, that we have been purchased, that we belong to you. And we so desire both now and, and, and if you should tarry, Lord, in the future when we have long past, whenever our name comes into a conversation that, that the remembrance of it, the reflecting of it glorifies you, that the remember the, the memories that are retained are, are that that person, that family loved Jesus, they served Jesus, they, they were really. Christ-like Christians loved his family well. They loved neighbors. They were generous. They were respectful. They they stood up for righteousness, but did so with respect and gentleness, even though holding a a firm resolve, that that mark would be left. And so I pray that you would help us as a church, individually and and just collectively together, um, do so do so. We, we desire, God, to your name, to, to be living in such a way where that is the legacy we leave from generation to generation, that it just continues. That's our desire, Father. We love you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.